You know, I, I wasn't exactly sure how Zach was going to introduce me today. Um, I'm, I'm sure many of you know Zach loves pranks, um, and I've been a part of a few on the other end of a few of Zach's pranks. And so, like, when he said, I promise I'm going to introduce you nicely today, I wasn't quite sure if I believed him, but thank you. Thank you, Zach. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I, um, I'm just excited to be here with you guys today. Uh, I... I attended Central Christian College back in uh, 93 through 97, where I got my AA degree, and then I went off um, to finish up at McPherson College to get my education certificate so that I could be a teacher. And man, over the last uh, 25 years in education, I've just really had some pretty amazing experiences. As, Jack, as Zach said, uh, I had the opportunity to teach overseas for a long time. And that's really I, where I want to start my story with you guys today. Um, 17 years ago, my own resilience was at just an all-time low. Um, at that point, I had taught overseas for 13 years. I had taught in Mexico and Brazil. Um, and in my third year in Brasilia, in the capital of Brazil, where I was teaching those beautiful kindergartners, I was struggling. I was struggling mentally, physically, spiritually. I, I just, I wasn't healthy in any way. And I was desperately sad. I really don't know how to explain that sad to you other than just desperately sad. Um, I was depressed. I was covered in hives from head to toe. And um, I was at the point in my life where I really couldn't make any decisions. And so it was family and friends that pushed me on a plane to head back home to McPherson, Kansas, um, where I ended up living with my parents at the age of 30. Now, that's not fun to move back home to your parents at the age of 30. And you know what, coming back to the States after living overseas for such a long time, you know, we, we talk a lot about culture shock. Like when you go to a new country and um, where you're going to live and just the experiences of figuring out what does it mean to be a part of the culture and um, just all of the differences. What we don't talk about is reverse culture shock. So when you're coming back home to your home country, and the challenges that come into play as you're learning how to live in the United States again. Um, you know, I had been over those 13 years, I had been back to the States, of course, but usually I use my vacation time to go travel. Um, you know, I, I wanted to go see as much of the world as possible. And so I really, truly had not spent that much time in the States. And there was many challenges of coming back home. So my mom, during that first week back, my mom asked me to go to Walmart. <laughs> she just had a list of groceries that she needed. And um, I was like, okay, yeah, let's go do this. And so I, well, on, the, on the list was spaghetti sauce. Pretty normal item to get from the grocery store, right? Well, when I got to the, to the spaghetti sauce aisle, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> there was 23 different kinds of spaghetti sauce. I counted. And I didn't know what to pick. I was used to the corner market in Brasilia that had two choices, which was plenty for me. And I just, I just looked at all of these different kinds of sauces and really had no idea what to do. 
I asked a lady, I was like, what is your favorite? And she looked at me kind of strange and then she pointed. And so that's the one that I put in my cart. Well, I'm continuing to get the items and shopping and doing the thing. And the last item on that list was toothpaste. And you can imagine when I got to the toothpaste aisle, it was pretty similar to the aisle of spaghetti sauce. Except this time, there was 17 different kinds of toothpaste. And you know what? Just this sense of overwhelm set into my body. I didn't know what to choose. Something as simple as toothpaste, but I really honestly didn't know what to do. How do you decide? What do you pick? You know what? That overwhelm instantly turned into my very first panic attack. I couldn't breathe. And I didn't really know that it was a panic attack at that time. I just knew I couldn't breathe. And the only thing that kept going through my head was, breathe, Carmen, breathe. But I tend to hyperventilate. In that moment, I hyperventilated. And so I was making it worse. I was trying to catch up double breaths because of that hyperventilation. I remember sitting on the cold tile floor in Walmart, in front of the toothpaste of all places, just trying to breathe. A lady came up to me and she asked, are you okay? I couldn't even speak. I just handed her my phone where I had pressed number three to speed dial my mom. And the lady got on the phone with my mom and asked her, said, your daughter's not doing well, you need to come. And so that's what my mom did. You know, sometimes panic attacks for me would last for four minutes. Sometimes they would last up to an hour. And you know what? A sense of powerlessness just set in. I didn't have any control. I couldn't control my breathing. I couldn't control my life. I was living back at my parents' house at age 30. Life was hard and uncomfortable, and I was still so very sad. I didn't want to feel out of control anymore. And I decided that the best way to handle this was to just stay at my parents' house and not leave. And a sense of isolation set in. You know, during this time of of self-isolation, I really honestly couldn't hear God. I couldn't feel him. I, he wasn't answering any of my prayers. In fact, I was pretty mad at him. If I'm being honest, I also felt a lot of shame. I had made some poor choices. And shame for those poor choices really set me on this path of coming back to Brazil, coming back to the States. And I really didn't know how he could forgive me, how some of my friends could forgive me, and how I could forgive myself. I really could feel David, uh, the psalmist's angst when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away 
from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night. And I, I just find no rest. We find that in Psalms 22, verses 1 through 2. And I could put myself right in there. You know, at nighttime, I would just lay in bed. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't, I, I couldn't think about other people. It was just complete powerlessness and overwhelm. You know, science tells us that when overwhelm plus powerlessness plus isolation happen, we're dealing with something called toxic stress. You know, toxic stress is the body's response to severe and lasting stress without enough support from others. In my case, I had support from others, but I was pushing everybody away, and I built a pretty strong wall around myself. When a human doesn't get the help that they need, the body can't turn off the stress response usually. This lasting stress can harm your body and brain and can cause lifelong health problems. Here's the thing, when we're under stress, we are living in our survival brain. When we're in our survival brain, we, each of us have a, has a different response to that. Some of us fight. We're going to yell, we're going to argue, we're going to punch a wall, we're going to punch a human. Others of us freeze, and that was my case. I would just sink to the floor and try to breathe. Other of us flight. We go as far away as we possibly can from whatever is happening. You know, in, in my thinking during that time, it was like, how do I get out of this? this constant freeze, this constant panic. In a lot of ways, my brain was doing exactly what it was supposed to do. It was protecting me. You know, it was doing its biological response of freeze. But I kind of, I thought in the back of my head that there has to be a way to move forward. You know, my mom realized the severity of all that was happening long before I ever did. And I landed in a counseling office for um, two times a week for an entire year. And I realized the privilege in that statement. You know, what happened in those counseling sessions really just changed, changed my life. For the first time in a long time, I felt seen and I felt heard. My counselor worked with my doctor so that we could get a better understanding of the panic attacks that were happening on a daily basis, sometimes multiple times a day, as well as the hives. If you've ever had hives, you know how uncomfortable they are. And I literally was covered from head to toe in, head to toe in hives for over, over three months. You know, my doctor um, decided, well, I was also diagnosed with severe depression, to nobody's surprise. And so part of the plan that they created did include some medication for me to help with the hives and also to help with the anxiety that I was feeling. The counselor, my counselor, um, her name is Barb Claussen. She helped me to create a toolbox of support. And in that toolbox, there was all kinds of things that I could go to 
when I was feeling that powerlessness and that overwhelm. One of those things was journaling. And I pulled out one of my journals from, from that time period last night. I wrote in these journals, I have eight of them from that year. I wrote in these journals every single day. They were constantly with me. Um, they were in my backpack, they were in my purse, they were at church, they were, I took them everywhere with me. We also talked about music. And so I created this playlist of songs on my iPod. I realize I'm dating myself right there. Uh, this playlist of songs that included um, praise and worship songs, songs from Michael Bublé, song, just any songs that really just spoke to me. Um, books were a big part of my toolbox of support. I've always enjoyed reading, but I'd never been really a nonfiction reader. And so I was introduced to authors such as Harriet Lerner, um, where we read her books, The Dance of Anger and The Dance of Connection. We also spent quite a bit of time learning about how to listen to others and hear their stories. I learned about the power of a long walk. And the idea that I really want to talk to you about today is about connection. So Brene Brown is a social worker, a researcher, a podcaster, a teacher, um, and I love her definition of connection. She says, I define connection as the energy that exists between people when they feel seen, heard, and valued. When they can give and receive without judgment and when they derive sustenance and strength from the relationship. Huh. So in order to move from that survival brain into my relationship brain, it takes connection. You know what? I didn't know that type of connection, and I set out to find it. So I started spending time at our local coffee shop, which we don't have anymore, unfortunately, the well. It was a safe, safe haven for me. I was blessed to, uh, we moved to McPherson from California when I was uh, in high school. So I was here, you know, I went to high school and all through college here in Mac. So I knew a lot of the people that were frequent frequenting the well. And it just felt so good to reconnect with people that I hadn't seen in such a long time. Uh, you know, I would sit at their tables, hear them tell the stories of the good old days, and you know what? I wasn't really ready to share much about myself, but I could feel things changing as I listened to their stories. You know, jump ahead a couple of months and I had found a really good group of friends. Suzanne, Rebecca, Jerry Lynn. I was still really hesitant to be vulnerable in all of the things with them but I was getting better. You know, the panic attacks were only coming about once a week as, at this point. The hives had cleared up and the sense of overwhelm and powerlessness was slowly but surely leaving my body. You know, and these times, this, this, this time with, with this group of friends was so instrumental in that. And we did nothing special other than gather around the table together and have conversations about what was going on in our lives. You know, in my daily journaling, I was writing prayers to God 
I mean, really, it was more of a conversation. I was talking about the things that I was learning in counseling, how I was applying it. Um, I was sharing about the shame that I was still carrying. Um, and I, I also talked about the anger that I still felt towards God and towards, towards others. You know, Jeremiah 24, 7 really just gave me some hope. And it says, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. You know, I had been back in McPherson for six months at this time, and um, I'll never forget when Linda Farrell called me, and she invited me over to her house uh, to help her make some chocolate-covered strawberries and cream cheese, cream cheese mints for her son Matt's wedding reception that was going to be at church. You know, I had known Linda for many years. I even had the privilege to do my student teaching under her. She, she knew something was up. She didn't know all that was happening in my life at the time. But you know what she did? She just invited me into her home. She shared her life with me. And she let me share as much as I wanted or as little as I wanted. She really helped me to feel seen. Counseling, medication, a small group of friends are what really helped me to do the work that year. You know, I was starting to feel better mentally and physically and spiritually. You know, the group of students, um, I felt ready to apply to a teaching position here in McPherson. I knew that I wasn't ready to go back out overseas, that I still needed time with family and friends um, and to really work on my mental health. And so I was like, okay, I think I'm ready. And so I applied for a position at McPherson and I got my dream teaching job at Eisenhower Elementary teaching third graders, which is where I had done my student teaching so many years prior. I love Eisenhower Elementary. And I was so excited to be able to be there, to teach with Linda, to teach with other people that had really impacted my, my teaching career. Well, I was, you know, I got my class list and I was writing kids' names down and just so ready for them to come into the doors that, that first day. And you know what, this group of students really just opened up my heart. Um, I felt connected to them. Not only could I bring, you know, my whole self to this class, they also did. We spent many hours at our gathering place where we talked about dreams and hopes, we shared successes, and we worked through failures together. You know, during the first week of school, I had a parent come in and she let me know that her son had developed anxiety over the summer, and in particular, panic attacks. She shared that she shared some strategies that, that in case he would have one at school, what I should do. I just looked at this mom with a smile and with tears in my eyes, and I said, I get it. Panic attacks are a part of my story as well. And she couldn't believe it. <laughs> this new teacher to the district, her kid just happened to be on, his, on, on her list, her classroom list, 
and she understood about anxiety and panic attacks. Right then and there is when I realized, hmm, I might have some things to share with people. This mom felt seen and heard. You know what, and I did too. I did too. You know, this particular group of third graders, they are in college, they're working full-time jobs, they're getting married, um, and it's such a privilege to still be connected to them. When I think of that class, I think of Brene Brown's definition about how the energy that existed between us all, and I hope and I know that these kids felt seen and heard and valued, and I hope still to this day that they do, that they feel seen, heard, and valued. You know, isn't that what we all want? To feel seen and heard and valued? I found during those trying times that God really does see us, he really does hear us, and he really does value us. You know, I think of how in Jeremiah 29, 11, which is a verse many of us are familiar with, we know that God sees us. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to, for, your, for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. You know, we know that God hears us. In just those next two verses, Jeremiah 29, 12, and 13, then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me with all of your heart. And guess what? He values us so much. And we see that in so many verses, but one of my favorites is from Psalms 139. For you formed my inner ward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. You know, I think back to that time when I arrived back into the United States with my mind and my body and my spirit just in complete overwhelm, powerlessness, and isolation. You know what? Isolation was the kicker. By isolating myself, I couldn't hear from others. I couldn't learn from others. And I certainly didn't want to keep just hearing this overwhelm in my head. By taking a step to sit at a table in a coffee shop and listening to others, I started to find my own voice. And I realized in my heart that I am worthy of connection. To this day, I still struggle with depression and anxiety. But you know what? Sometimes that powerlessness and that, that overwhelm come into play. But I fight as hard as I possibly can to keep that isolation out. Because I know that God created us for community. And it really truly is Satan's lie that we can do all of the things on our own. And so when I'm feeling that isolation set in or that powerlessness and that overwhelm just, just take over, I make that step. Jesus, please help me to reach out to somebody. You know, I know I can text Mindy. I know I can call Suzanne. I know that I can meet Zach for a cup of coffee. 
And you know what? They're not going to say anything magical. But they are going to, in their own way, they're going to they're gonna hear where I'm at, and they're just going to let me know that, that I'm okay and that they're here with me. And in that, they're seeing me, they're hearing me, and they're valuing me. You know, I wonder how many of our friends right here in this room don't think they're worthy of connection. You know, I wonder how many people in our circle of influence just need a space or just need time to be able to tell their story. And I wonder what we can learn from others by listening to their stories. I wonder how many people around us isolate themselves because they don't feel worthy of connection. How can we normalize this? How can we normalize reaching out and saying, hey, I, I need help, or I need a cup of coffee, or I need to go for a walk, or I just need a minute of your time? How can we normalize also reaching out and saying, hey, Mindy, I, I want to know what's going on in your life right now. Let's, let's, let's go for a walk. We're so busy. We're so busy. And you know what? We're also very busy. We're wrapped up in ourselves, too. How can we look out and see who else needs a space and time to be able to tell their story? And you know what? Here's the thing. What I've learned is that when I take the time to reach out to somebody and say, hey, I want to, let's go for a walk or let's go for a cup of coffee. I want to hear what's going on in your life. I learned so much. I learned so much. And a lot of times there's things that are similar that's happening in my life. And we can just hold space together for what's ever going on. You know, I really truly believe and, and, you know, and this is, what I, this is what we talk about so much in the trainings that we do with teachers across the state of Kansas. Can we gather people together, be it in a classroom or around a table or in a coffee shop, and just be able to give people time and space to share? Because I think we could change the world. And I know that sounds pretty, like, real, like, toxic positivity there. But I, I think that there's so many people that don't have time and space and are just isolating themselves. And I don't want that for anybody. I did that. It's not good. <laughs> it's not helpful. And God doesn't want us to live that way. God says very clearly over and over in scripture, come together. Come together. And so friends, I just invite you today. Who is that person that you need to reach out to? to share you, and who is that person you need to reach out to to let them share about them? That's my challenge for you today. Thank you. Carmen, thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, we're going to, if you have some things that you would like to ask Carmen, we're going to put up the, 
the next screen will have the the texting capability. So if you want, if there are things you want to ask Carmen while she's with us, I will field them and uh, and ask her. But I have some things that I I wrote down as you were um, as you were talking. Why do you think that we that things like anxiety, depression, those sorts of issues, we we don't talk about them, and when we do, it's weird and awkward and uncomfortable. Um, why, why do you think we don't talk more about that, besides the fact that it's weird and awkward and uncomfortable? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, Zach, I think back to 17 years ago, like, mm -hmm. we didn't talk about it at all. Yeah. Like, it was not talked about at all. And so I feel like we've made a lot of progress in this area, um, but I think that we have to just keep saying, like, it's okay. <laughs> If, if, if I had cancer, it would be okay to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. If I was sick with something, it would be okay to talk about that and to share that with you all. Why is it not okay for me to talk about anxiety Yeah, we do that a lot. I really appreciate it in your story when you, you talked about, hey, you're meeting with a counselor, you're meeting with your doctor, and so there were these different levels approach, and one of them was medicine, right? And there's some, some sort of stigma about medicine for anxiety, for depression, and it's the same sort of thing. If my arm's broken, I'm going to put it in a cabinet, yes. do what I need to do to heal my broken arm. If my if there's something in my brain that's not balanced, I'm going to do whatever it takes medically to help that's right. fix a chemical imbalance, right? That's right. Um, somebody wants to know, this is a great question. They, they want to know if there's anything, are there tools in your toolbox? And I love that phrase that you still use to... to when you yeah. feel times of anxiety? Um, I still journal. Um, I probably don't journal every day, but I journal three, four times a week. Um, so you will always find me with some sort of notebook. And uh, for me, I, I like to write out my journals. Some people can just do it like on their phone in the notes section or something, but there's something about me of just a handwriting. Um, also walk, walking long walks. Um, I have three dogs now, so it's kind of really important to do those long walks, but there is something about just taking a long walk. Um, I feel like it helps us with creativity. It helps us with just calming our nervous system down as well, um, and um, walks are really, really critical to my mental health. Um, and also, um, playlists. I think playlists, now I have them on Spotify, not on my iPod, but playlists are really important. Hey, by the way, did you, did you catch that? So uh, there's a question in my notes. Um, how many Michael Buble songs are on your playlist, <laughs> you big freak? <laughs> so um, probably a few, probably a few. The whole Christmas album, of so, course. So Carmen, have you ever seen Michael Buble live in concert? Let's see, Zach. I've seen Michael in concert like eight, like, eight like times. You, you're on a first name basis with. I've seen Michael. Mike and I, Mike and I talk every time I go to one of his concerts. What? Out of control. Some people are fans of Michael Bublé, and Zach some people are followers of Michael Bublé. If you remember my last talk with you guys, um, why do you? So going back, somebody else has asked, um, why do you think it's hard for people to admit they need therapy of some sort? There's just this thing that I feel like we've said it's, I, I feel like the church has said it's not okay. Mm. Like church, whole, big church has said it's not okay. And somewhere that's just seeped in 
Mm. And I just am going to say that's not true. It's yeah. not true. Yeah. There are so many counselors. And now with that, with so many online options for counseling, mm -hmm. like, I mean, over COVID, um, I used BetterHelp for, for counseling. Um, and now I, I have the opportunity to meet with an in-person counselor again. Counseling will always be part of my life. I don't see that ever going away. Mm. It's, yeah. There's something about just being able to go and talk to somebody, be it online or in person. Yeah, we, and we, so I, I go every month and meet with a counselor and it is the, it's the best part of my month. Um, and I remember saying that to somebody and they're like, oh, well, you need, yes, I, yes, I struggle with anxiety. Yes, I'm on medication for anxiety. Yes, I see a counselor once a month. Um, you can have Jesus and a therapist. Um, like, to, like, in fact, you should have Jesus and a therapist. Oh my goodness. Um, how can, that's not what I was gonna ask. Oh, there was the question. How do you keep yourself from harmful connections? That's a really good question. Um, I trust I trust my gut a lot. Um, and I don't, I'm not a person that's going to share all of the things. Like, it takes a long time to build up trust with me. Um, and so I really, I, you know, I love, going and having coffee with people and getting to hear their stories uh, and me getting to share. Like for me, it's a two-way street inside of the friendship journeys that I'm going on, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just me pouring out and giving, giving, giving. Um, it is for sure a two-way street. And I think that that's where I protect, protect my heart a little bit is, um, and from harmful, from harmful connections is really trusting my gut, praying about friendships, journaling about them. Like all of those things are part of my, my life. So what do you do? And I'm going to try to, cause there's, you guys, these are really good questions. I mean, some of y'all are messing with me and you do it every time and I just ignore you. Um, but there's, these are really good questions. So I'm going to try to combine a bunch of them. Um, cause I, th I think I kn understand the heart. Um, what about those spaces where you don't necessarily have a choice? So let's say it's a toxic work environment. Um, maybe you're part of a team and the team is a is there's a toxic culture or individuals on a team. How do you how do you how do you deal with that if that's causing if that's triggering in those sorts of ways? Yeah, I think those are where some hard choices have to come into play, right? Um, I think that you yourself have to do some things to prepare yourself to go into that space. So is it scripture? What, what's in your toolbox, right, to help you? Uh, is it scripture reading? Is it a certain song? Is it journaling out those fears? Is it also like you're set in that place to be a light right then and there? And so in that, like, let's just pray a lot of bring somebody else into this conversation and let's pray some protection around you in those spaces and places. Um, also, I think that sometimes we have to make the hard decision to say this isn't, this isn't for me anymore because I cannot let this affect my mental health like it is. And that is hard and difficult. <laughs> I get that. I've had to say that. I, I actually moved from one, one school building I moved from a, a, a teaching position to another teaching position because of that. And there was a lot of tears. Um, 
and a lot of conversation with people that I trust. Um, and that decision had to that decision had to be made to help my mental health. What advice would you give to a group of college students when you talk about the toolbox? What advice would you give on how do I start a toolbox? So here's what I would do is I would just think about what are those things that really give you like light? <laughs> and so like right away, music I knew was going to be a part of my toolbox. Creating playlists, I hadn't really thought about that, right? But that was a way that the, the counselor helped me with that. And then think about what, are, what, what is another thing that helps, that gives light? Is it doing a brain dump? Is it talking with Zach? Is it um, having a cup of coffee with a friend? Like, what are the things in? What are the things that are going to help you? Um, and you just have to. You kind of just have to play around with it. There was things inside the toolbox that my counselor shared that didn't stick. That didn't stick, and that's okay. Those weren't the right things for me. But journaling, playlists, uh, long walks. Those are things that have stuck for over seventeen years. I think that. If you're not somebody who struggles with anxiety and depression, it can be really difficult to know how to help a friend who struggles with anxiety and depression. I know I have a good friend who struggles with depression, and I'm, I'm not helpful because I'm like, well, just stop it. Be happy. Like, you suck it up, buttercup. And that's really not good advice for somebody that's depressed. Um, what, what would you say to somebody who's... Like, how do you support a friend who's struggling with anxiety or depression? And you can't relate to that. Yeah. Have you guys watched uh, the cartoon, the Disney cartoon? Um, is it Inside Out? And I mean, do you remember when sadness just showed up and just sat with, they held space, just sat? You don't have to do anything other than just be. You know, and, um, you know, in, in one of the workshops that we do with teachers is we're, we're talking so much about what does it look like to hold space for students? Um, and it's the same, it's the same thing for adults. We just, we just be, we just be there with them. We check in on them. Hey, let's go for a walk. You know, I, you know, my go-tos are a walk and coffee, like, or maybe a game night or tacos. I mean, Zach and I are mourning the fact that Torchy's Tacos has disappeared from Wichita. Too but, soon. Don't talk about it. <laughs> too soon. Um, you know, like, those are things. Like, what, what is it about your friend? What are things, what are go-to things that she or he loves? Maybe it's going playing, playing a game of basketball or going to the tennis courts. What is something that you can do so that they're not isolated? That you're with them. You're walking with. I think that that is the biggest thing, is for somebody who is struggling with depression, they, they want to know, they want to know that somebody's walking with them. So there is, um, trying to decide what I wrote here. Um, let's talk about shame, um, because that was, that, and we're both, you and I are both big Brene Brown fans, and so a lot of, yeah, I, I won't tell them there's nothing new under the sun. So there's no, so it's, it's all, it's all ours. We can hold it all as truth. Um, but let's talk a little bit about shame. Why do you think, why do you think we hold on to shame like we do? What, what, why do you think that that's, because we do that. Shame is this really hard thing to release and accept forgiveness and accept grace. Yeah, I think with shame, um, you know, 
Brene Brown talks about how the the thing with shame is is usually it's this this secret <laughs> that we're not letting anybody in on, right? So it's something that we don't we can't we don't feel like we can trust anybody with. And the the way that we release our shame is when we let somebody in, when we bring light to it. And so is that in uh, a prayer conversation with God, 100%. <laughs> is that also with maybe talking through it with your counselor? Yeah. Hmm. Is that also letting a trusted friend in on it? Bringing light to anything um, is, is really life-changing. Um, and so when we are ashamed, you know, I, I, in my situation with, with things that I was carrying, like I, I was struggling so much, even with songs at church, like amazing grace. No, he, there's no grace. There's no grace for all of the, the crap that I've pulled, like all the things that I've done, all the hurt. There's no grace. Like even those kind of things were really triggering for me. And so I really had to, and nobody understood that. But the reason why is I didn't let him in. I didn't let anybody into all of that. And once I really told mm. what was going on and what I was feeling, and there was some light there, whew, that's when things changed. Yeah, I, uh, so, so Jesus is real. God is real, um, but so is Satan. Um, Satan is also real, and one of the biggest tricks of Satan, one of the biggest tricks of the devil is to make you think you're the only one, right? And so shame can exist in secret and in dark because I can't, I can't tell you this thing. I can't say that I did this or that I struggle with this because if I do that, you're going to, like, I'm the only one. I'm, I'm the only one that's trapped in this. And no one is, yeah. Uh, and the, the freedom, shame loses its power when it's confessed. Um, it, it loses, Satan loses his power in confection, confession. When things move from being, coming to the light. Um, all right, Carmen, I promised this, uh, oh, let me ask that. Did you ever feel guilty for asking for help? Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> oh, I remember showing up at Zach and Suzanne's house one night. It was like 9.30 at night. We had littles, um, and I was, I was a mess. And, and I'm usually like, Suzanne, Carmen's here. Like, like <laughs> that's not a Pastor Zach situation. That is a, clearly you don't want to talk to me because um, in the words of my wife, I'm not the most sensitive person in the world. <laughs> and so, you know, I can't tell you how many times um, people allowed me to just show up at their house. And um, there was a lot of guilt. I did feel a lot of guilt in that. Um, and now... I still feel a little bit, right? I still feel a little bit, but it's part of it that I'm I'm fighting against isolation. I'm mm. fighting against Satan. And if I don't, if I don't fight against that isolation, I'm I'm going to be on the floor or I'm not going to be here. I'll be real honest. Mm. Like I won't be I physically won't be here mm. if I don't fight against that isolation. All right, let's end in a little bit lighter of a note, and because the, the question came up, and so I feel that I want to honor the questions that you're asking, and I feel like the room needs to know. 
Um, they want to know the best prank that I pulled on you. Oh, I thank you so much for asking this question. Okay, so I was the, um, I was the office manager at the Free Methodist Church, and um, I mean, there's lots, but I think I have to tell this one. I'm, I, I have a feeling I know where you're going, but go ahead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'm pretty proud of it, too, so please share. <laughs> and um, I had to change the, like, the voicemail recording on the answering machine, but it it was a little complicated. And we always had to, I always had to pick like the right time to do it because if anybody rang in, I would have to start the whole process all over again. So um, I always tried to do it, you know, like at 1130 because usually people, we usually didn't have that many phone calls at that time. Well, I'm trying to do this and somebody keeps, like I would get to the point where I'm actually recording the message. Thank you for calling in McPherson Free Methodist Church. And then somebody would ring in. And then I would go to answer, hi, this is Carmen. How can I help you? And they would hang up. And then go back in, do the whole process thing again, and then get to the point, um, thank you for calling the McPherson Free Methodist Church. And somebody would ring in. And I'd go to answer the phone, and they weren't there again. They did it like eight times, people. Eight. Eight times. And then I hear somebody laughing down the hallway. And I realized that it was my good friend, Zach Fleming, who had called in every single time um, and made me not be able to do my job. I had to stand in the hallway to know that you were at the right place for me to call in. And, and then you yelled at me. And so I said, okay, I promise I won't call in anymore. Uh, it was funny. Eight times, eight times is enough. After eight times, it ceases to be funny. For a normal person, it ceases to be funny. Not for Zach. So you call, you did it again. And what did I do the next time when you were, I waited. Yes. Do you remember what I did? I remember. I ran down the hall oh, blowing yes. a clarinet yes. as loud as I could. So you couldn't think and, oh, you were almost in tears. You were so mad at me. Yes. Um, you just went, yeah, I remember that. That was a good day. That's all I did that day. That's that a good day. Literally all you did that day. <laughs> the other yeah. time is when Zach was on Red Bull. Oh, yeah. Not yeah, bad. I drank like two Red Bulls, and then I was like, we should go like rearrange the church. <laughs> uh, Carmen, as we wrap up this morning, as we wrap up this morning, I would love, um, would you pray a prayer over us as a campus? For sure. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for um, everybody here. And um, Lord, I just pray that you will just be with them, that you will um, challenge them to, to seek out, ask for help. Um, ask, for some, ask somebody to go for coffee this week and just help others to feel seen, heard, and valued. And Lord, that really is my prayer. Just like you want, you see us, you hear us, you value us. Lord, I just pray that everybody here in this building feels that as well. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, you're dismissed. Don't forget, if you want to talk more, follow up 1130 to 1 in the middle.